We have been uh, looking for the last three months at Luke's Gospel, not everything in Luke's Gospel, but we've been looking at some of the things in Luke's Gospel in a series entitled Jesus' Kingdom, People, and Purpose. Because Luke, writing for the Gentiles as he was, was keen to show the importance of Jesus' ministry to us who are Gentiles. It's important for us to take note. And if you happen to be a Jew amongst us, well, of course, it's important for you as well. He, he started his ministry, as it says right at the beginning of Luke's Gospel, he started it by preaching the kingdom. And all the way through Luke's Gospel, he's giving us different aspects of how Jesus and his purpose and his presence impacted this world as the kingdom was being revealed here in this world. At the same time, we as groups, home groups in Abbey Church here, we've been looking together at, um, in our home groups about being part of God's kingdom in our community. And we've been sharing together things that other people have said and other people have done about how we can make an impact upon our particular locality, our particular uh, community where we are, so that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of men interact. The kingdom of God impacts the kingdom of men because God today is still working his purpose out. And the last couple of weeks of that series, we've been looking, of course, because of Easter, we've been looking at the passion of Jesus, the cross, and then, then last weekend, the resurrection, a great time of year. The Apostle Paul stood before King Agrippa, <coughs> King Herod, King Agrippa. He was on trial for his life. By the way, both Herod and his father are called Agrippa. James, uh, Herod the first, first, Herod Agrippa the first, Agrippa the first, killed James, one of the apostles, and tried to kill Peter, and just to confuse matters, Agrippa I and Agrippa II are both called Herod, which confuses things when you read in the Bible about Herod or Agrippa because you're never quite sure which one it is. And they had a grandfather who was also called Herod. That was the family name. So that's where it all gets confusing. But anyway, that, we needn't worry ourselves with all that right now. But now Paul stands before Her Agrippa II, Agrippa II. He, Agrippa, had arrived in Caesarea with his wife, Bernice, who was also his sister, which tells you how his family was rather complicated. But uh, she was his sister, he was his wife, he married his sister. And he came with great pomp and majesty. In fact, the Greek word that's used is phantasia. Great pomp and majesty as he came, Herod arrived. And he came particularly to build up relationships with the local governor, whose name was Festus. And um, now in the great hall, the great arena, the great audience chamber, Paul is brought in. He's actually been brought in at that time, more or less for the entertainment of all these dignitaries who were gathering together. They wanted something to do at the end of the meal, no doubt, and they brought in Paul to give his defense and speak about himself. And uh, Festus had some things to say, and he summarized the charges before King Agrippa, because Festus had found out 
that um, Paul was brought by the Jews asking that they put him to death but because the Jews didn't have authority to do it themselves. They had to come to the Roman authorities. And when the charges were brought, well, Festus didn't understand them because it was all about this man, Jesus, who had been put to death and now they were saying that he was alive again. And this man, Paul, who was on uh, capital charge, was going around saying that the Jesus who had died was alive again. And Festus didn't know what he should do. Does this demand that we put him to death or not? So with Herod in town, he decided he would share it with Herod and get Herod's opinion whether he should be put to, do- to death. And so Paul was given a chance to give his defense. And he stood up and he said this, Why should you think it remarkable that God raises the dead? Good question. After all, if God can bring this world into being with a word, well, raising the dead is nothing compared with that, is it? So he says, why should you think it incredible that God raises the dead? And then he goes on to say, if all this is true, King Agrippa, It has equal relevance to Jews and to Gentiles. Now at that point, Festus was hopping mad, being a Gentile, and he stood up and shouted at Paul and said, Paul, you're out of your mind. Actually, the word he used is the word, you're a maniac. You're out of your mind. Do you think you can make me a Christian like this? And Paul said, I'm not insane. Most excellent Festus, what I am saying is true and reasonable. Now this morning, following last East last weekend, which was Easter time, I want to say before you that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is true and reasonable. It's not so remarkable when you think that it's God intervening in this world. It is true and reasonable, just as Paul said. And because it's true and reasonable, it has utmost relevance to both Jews and Gentiles. It took a while for all this to become apparent to the disciples on the first day of Jesus' resurrection. Easter Sunday, as we thought about last weekend, far from being a huge day of triumph, which we like to think of it as as a huge day of celebration, was in fact mostly a day of questioning. Mostly a day of uncertainty, mostly an emotional roller coaster for the apostles. They didn't know what to believe when they saw the empty tomb and all that. They were up and down in their thinking, really didn't know what to think. It started, as I said last Sunday, with anything but good news. The women came back and said, body's not there. That was anything but good news as far as they were concerned. They've taken the body, as we thought about last Sunday. Gradually, not knowing what else to do, the disciples began to drift off back to their old way of life. Some of them said, let's go fishing. Here we've read in our scripture reading today that a couple went and said, well, we'll go back to Emmaus, seven miles away, we'll walk back and don't know what's been going on, but it can't make much sense of it. Now, all this is recorded by Luke because he's anxious to get this sense of unfolding reality, layer upon layer of the wonder of what's The resurrection is all about being unfolded. It's not just a big splurge that something happened on Easter Sunday and that's it. They look back to it and say, well, then amazing, what happened then? It's an unfolding 
a greater and greater realization of what it means. He wants us to see, Luke wants us to see how skeptics became believers. How there was this gathering sense of realization, he's alive. And because he's alive, it makes a difference in every area of life. Nothing else matters. We're overwhelmed by it. And they began preaching Jesus and the resurrection. You read the first few chapters of the book of Acts. They went everywhere, and that was the message. Jesus and the resurrection. Jesus and the resurrection. In fact, it's Jesus and anastasis. That's the Greek word for resurrection. Anastasis. And in some places, history tells us, as they went around preaching Jesus and Anastasis, some thought they were preaching a new God, a new God Jesus, with his wife Anastasis. <laughs> of course, some people are called Anastasis, some girls. But Jesus and the resurrection, it changed everything. Everywhere they went, they were preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And the reason it was so important for those involved was that it wasn't just a fact that happened a few weeks earlier, or a little bit later, a few years earlier, something that happened in history to look back to and say, wasn't it remarkable? It meant that a new kingdom had been inaugurated. A whole new value system, a whole new objective for living, a whole new purpose for living. Everything was changed. The people were changed so radically. The purposes were changed so radically. It didn't matter how much it cost, they had to get this message out. In fact, it didn't matter if they were thrown in prison from there on. It didn't matter if they were put to death. In fact, history tells us that all but one of the disciples were put to death for their belief in Jesus and the resurrection. So how does it all come about? Well, as we've been looking at, we can't look at it all today, but we can look at some of the things he said. When the women folk went down to the tomb, they expected to see a body, but instead they saw angels who spoke to them. And it's not surprising that they were terrified. They bowed down with their faces to the ground. They were frightened to death almost by it all. But there was something stirring within them. And something that changed them so radically, as I said, that eventually, within 50 years, every city, in the, every major city in the Roman Empire had a gathering of people who met together to worship this person who had died and had been raised to new life. Jesus, the church had been... Uh, had a place for worship in every Roman city. But in start, these women folk just couldn't make it out. And the angels said to them, we read it together, remember what he said to you to start with. That's the first thing. Remember what he said. Look at his promises. It's in verse 6 of the chapter. Remember what he'd said. Now, it's important for us that's why we've got the scriptures here, so that we can look and see what the scriptures say. If you want the impact of the resurrection to become real for you, then you need to start here. That's what the angel said. Look at what he said. Look at the promises he made. And there are dozens and dozens of prophecies through the Old Testament talking about the fact that he was going to rise from the dead. And then through Jesus' ministry, in fact, it tells us that when Jesus said he was going to be crucified and uh, three days later rise from the dead, the disciples started by saying, we won't let that happen to you. Don't worry about that. Because they thought that anybody who was going to be put to death, it was a sign of God's anger, not God's blessing. And they knew that Jesus had been sent by God and so they said, well, we won't let that happen to you. Can't possibly happen to you. You're pleasing to God, so you can't possibly be put to death. 
So they said, we won't let that happen to you. And Jesus said, yes, I'm going to rise from the dead. And it says in the scripture, they did not believe him. And then a little bit later on, you can read about it in Mark's gospel, they said the same thing again. He was going to be crucified, taken by wicked men, crucified, three days later, later, rise from the dead. And again they said, we won't let that happen. Because they just couldn't get to grips with this idea that Jesus was going to die, and especially that he was going to be raised from the dead. But Jesus had said it again and again and again, and the angels now said to the women, remember what he said? It's exactly what he said. Of course, for the Jews, the Jews, the cross of Jesus, always has and always is a stumbling block, as Paul says. For the Greeks, it was nonsense, it was foolishness, says Paul in Corinthians. The word he uses is the word moros, which means you'd have to be a moron to believe that. But now, in fact, the Romans couldn't believe it either. Cicero, who was one of their most famous, eloquent writers, Cicero said, the cross should never be, on the, uh, be before the eyes, never enter the ears, never be on the lips of a citizen of Rome. So they said, we can't believe this. The disciples didn't believe it. But Jesus said, I will rise from the dead. But he died on that cross. His holy fingers made the bough that grew the thorns that crowned his brow. The nails that pierced his hands were mined in secret places he designed. He grew the forest whence there sprung the tree on which his body hung. He died upon a cross of wood yet made the hill on which it stood. That's the picture that's given for Jesus dying on the cross. Remember it. Remember what he said, says the angels. May I commend that to you? If you want to understand the resurrection, look at what Jesus said. Start there. Secondly, the angel said, examine the evidence. Come and see the place. Examine the evidence. The empty tomb. Mary's went back and they said, he's not there. We've seen the angels. Peter went down. He had a look. Couldn't understand it to start with. Initially couldn't understand it. But gradually it began to dawn on them. It's this layer upon layer upon layer gradually began to query and be questioned and examining the evidence. And there are so many people who reject the resurrection of Jesus without ever looking at the evidence. When you look at the evidence as the angel invited us to do, well, you'd have to join Professor Arnold, who was professor of history at Oxford University, who said, I know of no fact in the history of the universe proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort to the mind of the fair inquirer than the fact that Jesus lived, died, and that he rose again. So exa examine the promises, what Jesus said. Examine the evidence. Thirdly, experience the person, said the angel. In fact, it comes a bit later in the story, too, with that story about the two on the road to Emmaus. Um, Jesus just came and walked alongside. And they began to talk to this stranger who they didn't really know who he was, and they began to talk with this stranger. And as Luke records it, it seems that Luke is wanting us to examine layer upon layer what this resurrection actually will mean for us. Luke was anxious, first of all, to communicate the hopeful and joyful nature of the gospel. Uh, did you notice in verse 17, as they were walking along, and uh, 
They talked and discussed these things, and Jesus himself came and walked alongside with them, and they were kept from recognizing, and he asked them, what are you discussing as you walk along? Then it says this, they stood still, their faces downcast. Can you imagine? You know, just, they stood still, their faces downcast. Because they didn't know who he was. But the remarkable difference when faces downcast, at the end of the story, they went back to Jerusalem filled with joy. The first thing that Luke wants us to understand is this sense of joy that overtakes us when we begin to realize that Jesus is alive. I can never understand, well, I suppose I can understand, but when the church of Jesus Christ is portrayed so often on television, in films and plays and, and uh, so on, it's always as something terribly, terribly dull, boring, cold, uninteresting. All I can say is that they don't know what the real church is about. I mean, the disciples, were they dull and boring when they were being marching around and with great joy preaching Jesus and the resurrection, getting thrown into prison, getting hauled out before the authorities and saying, we can't help doing what we're doing, this wonderful message we've got to wasn't dull, wasn't boring, wasn't uninteresting, may have been tough. But Luke wants us to know this sense of joy. We should not be those people who stand still looking sad about everything and so on, carrying our big black Bibles and our big black looks and our big black clothes and we toddle along to church and it's all so boring. We should be the most joyful people that there are because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Christianity is the only religion that sings. Not surprising, really. Uh, you read it through the Old Testament a bit. Two million by the Red Sea, praising God, Deborah and Barak and all of that. And then there's David who sung his songs and Job who says that, says that God gave him songs in the night. And Paul and Silas who were thrown in prison, they were singing songs of praise in prison at Philippi. And then Paul talks about singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And the New Testament finishes with countless thousands of people gathered around the throne of the Lamb singing his praises. It's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing to sing. That's why we enjoy singing so much. Because of the joy that comes when you realize that Jesus is alive. And if you're one of those, by the way, that has never got to that point, it's probably because you've never really understood the resurrection. If you understood it, you could not help but sing if not with very good voices, you can from your heart. That's the first thing. Secondly, Luke wanted, them, wanted to communicate the personal nature of the gospel. You see, these two on that road were going along, toddling along to Emmaus, all bowed down and their faces looking sad and so on. When Jesus said to them, what are you sad about? And he said, well, we had hoped that this one was going to redeem Israel. You know, it was about the history of Israel and all that. But Jesus began to say to them, look, let me explain to you, to you. It becomes personal. And he began to explain things to them. He explained why it was necessary for Jesus to come and to die so that he could bear our sin in his body on the tree. And far from being just something that happened, a religious thing that happened down through history, it was something that became personal to them. He died for them. He was raised for their sakes, as, he, as Jesus explained it, to them. He did not die for no reason. 
he died that they might know life. And they began to speak about that as Jesus talked, uh, walked along the road with them. So the second thing is, he explained to them that it was personal. And Luke records that for us. The third thing that Luke wanted to communicate was the unique nature of the gospel. Jesus, as he talked to these on the road to Emmaus, it says about him, he explained to them and said all what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Not concerning Christian religion, not concerning Judaism, but things concerning himself. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything that was written must be fulfilled fulfilled concerning me, is what Jesus said. In other words, the focus from being something to do with Jewish religion now focuses upon this one person, Jesus. What this one person had done. How he died. How he was raised to life again. And it seems to be deliberate by Jesus that he wants them not only to understand the joyful nature of it, and the fact that it's personal, but that it concerns Jesus, 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 not religious things. That's very important, because the center of Christianity is the person of Jesus. I mean, there are many people who say, well, I don't mind being a Christian, I don't mind being good and kind and helpful, thoughtful, generous, nice. But you see, that's not really the heart of what Christianity is about. Christianity is about Jesus. That's why the disciples went everywhere preaching Jesus and the resurrection. It's about him. Unfortunately, there are so many people who think, well, it's just something to believe. It doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you believe it. Of course, we don't treat anything else like that. We don't go to our medicine cupboard when we're feeling ill and open the cupboard door and say, well, look at all these medicines. I don't know which one it is. As long as I believe it, well, this one will do. Not at all. It depends on what you are suffering from as to the particular medicine that you need. It's got nothing just to do with your belief. It's what its purpose is. And the whole center of Christianity is Jesus. I am the way. No one comes to the Father except by me, said Jesus. And our focus must be on him. Some years ago, there was a big gathering in which the Pope was there, the Archbishop of Canterbury was there, a leading Zoroastrian, a leading Buddhist, a leading Muslim, a leading Jewish leader, a leading Christian group, and so on, including somebody who was known by um, John Pretty on top, the chief medicine man of the Crow Indians in Montana, United States. He was there as well. And they gathered together to say, let's see if we can have a central religion which everybody just joins in. And we'll get rid of all the problems and difficulties that way. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus is exclusive. And this resurrection of Jesus makes him the center of everything. That's why we should focus on him. And Luke is at pains to say that all of our attention, far from being on the rituals and ceremonies of Judaism and which ones get carried into the New Testament and all of that, whilst there's some things to be said about that, the main focus of it all is on this one person, Jesus, who's been raised from the dead. No wonder we should be joyful. There is only one to whom we, should, we can turn. And then Luke is also concerned to communicate the urgency of the message. 
the urgency of it all. It's so important. How slow of heart you are to believe, is what, how Jesus put it when he talked to those on the road to Emmaus. How slow of heart. There's an urgency about this. And may I say on this Sunday morning, I guess many of us here, most of us here, are already those who are committed to the Lord Jesus Christ as our Saviour and Lord. But it could easily be there are some who are not. You've known about it, you've thought about it, you have considered it a bit. May I say to you that as you look at the evidence, as you listen to the promises and what Jesus said, as you turn to him and see him as the risen Savior having died for you, there is an urgency that you do something about it. An urgency. It's not something to just be debated in your mind for the rest of your life as a sort of hobby. There's an urgency to respond. We should not be slow of heart to believe, to use Jesus' words in this story. And when they trusted him, when they recognized him, let me finish by saying there are three things he did. Firstly of all, he opened to them the scriptures. It says in verse 27, he opened the scriptures. This book became alive and exciting. In fact, it became their daily food. And it can become our daily food, spiritually speaking, as we read God's word. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Then it says he opened their eyes in verse 31. He opened their eyes and they recognized him. It means that day by day we see more and more in the Lord Jesus that excites us and encourages us and makes us live holy lives and makes us want to tell others about him. He opened the scriptures, he opened their eyes. And last of all, in verse 45, he said he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He opened their minds. And this morning, as we've just glanced at what happened on that Easter day, following on from this story last Sunday. The remarkable thing is that Jesus becomes the center, the focus of all that we have and all that we, we are. He opens this book to us. He opens our minds. He opens our hearts to himself. And then those disciples could not hold back from talking more and more and more about Jesus. And gradually, the kingdom that the Lord Jesus had been bringing in as he worked, as he lived and worked for three and a half years, or 33 and a half years here upon earth, began to be spread by the disciples too. And the works that the disciples were involved in, particularly the preaching of the disciples, spread that kingdom further and further. And you and I ought to be involved in it because nothing else matters except Jesus, who was crucified, and is now living. And so as we've spent these few weeks looking at Easter, may he send us from this place concerned not only to know him better, but to share him more, because nothing else really matters. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this passage of scripture that just reminds us briefly in this story about the opening of the minds and hearts of those two on the road to Emmaus. Help us, we pray, to not only know facts, but help us, we pray, to become more and more thrilled and excited with yourself and what you have done and are doing and will do, that we might live for the praise of your glory.
May your kingdom come. May your will be done in us and through us, we pray, for the glory of your name, till we see you face to face. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close with one very short.